Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And let's try this again as we learned it last week. Christ is risen. risen There we go. That's excellent. We got to remember that's not just for Easter Sunday. That's for every Sunday as we live as Christ's resurrection people, as we live as his good news people throughout the year, not just on Easter Sunday. So thank you for once again declaring that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And I want to take just a moment just as we as we. Uh, as we should do more often, and thank our choir and our musicians for the lovely music they provided last week and this week for the work that they do. Let's thank them for that. There are not as many of them up there because of all the, all the stuff we're having to deal with, but they do a fantastic job, and they are still working very, very hard to make sure that we are, are moving in all phases of our worship. Well, this has been a wonderful week, a wonderful week to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And if you remember last week, I mentioned that last Sunday, April 4th, was the exact date, the 175th year of our chartering, that is to say our our formation by Brazos Presbytery. So that was the official day when... Uh, First Presbyterian Church was born 175 years. And we've been talking about various folks, historical figures, great saints of the church over the last few weeks. But today I wanted to, to swing the camera a little bit differently and talk about some of our more recent saints. That is to say, two of our more recent saints. And I'll mention their names in just a second. But many of you may remember a great lady in our congregation who passed away several years ago. Her name was Ann Smith. Now, Ann was a great follower of Jesus Christ. She was a great leader in our community, and she was also just a great example of Southern grace and class, and one of those ladies that that everybody loved and everybody wanted to know. But one thing that you may not know about Ann was that literally for decades, Anne led a Bible study for women inmates in the old downtown San Antonio jail. And she got involved because one day our own Sandy Sturch, who had been leading this women's Bible study for years, needed to go out of town. She needed to be gone for a few weeks. And so she called Anne to substitute while she was gone. Now, I can tell you, I have done jail ministry before. I've led Bible studies in the Richmond City Jail and Henrico County Jail, did it for several years, and it can be a little scary when that huge steel door swings closed and clashes behind you, you realize that you're in a different world. And I'll tell you this, you don't see anybody that looks like Ann or Sandy in that jail. Nobody there wearing their pearls, the nice suit, and the very put-together hair. None of that. It's a very rough place. So I just love thinking about Sandy and Ann walking into that jail for the first time. Two completely unexpected characters. It's like Downton Abbey and the Shawshank Redemption are brought together. And then after three weeks... After Anne had fallen in love with these women that she was teaching, Sandy came back to town 
And she said, well, I'm ready to take over again. And Anne said, well, you can't have them back. She'd fallen in love with them. And the reason she'd fallen in love with them was this. She thrilled at sharing the love of Jesus Christ with these women. Because here's what she learned. She said, you don't have to convince these women about the reality of sin or guilt. They know sin. They believe in guilt. They don't just believe in, they just don't believe in redemption. They don't believe that God's love and forgiveness is for them. You don't have to convince them about sin and guilt. They just didn't believe that anybody cared, especially God. They didn't believe any of that until these two gentle women did something level, uh, loving. They did something sacrificial and they did something unexpected. And I'll tell you, I just love the, the vision of these two wonderful First Pres ladies doing something that no one would have expected. Walking into a jail, pearls and all, to tell people about the unexpected love of God in Jesus Christ. Well, this week, on this first Sunday after Easter, I want to challenge us. This great big 175-year-old legacy society church to consider how we can get people's attention to the unexpected love of God in Jesus Christ by doing some things that people would never expect. So let's go back to the eighth chapter of Mark to listen in on a personal conversation between Jesus and his disciples. Now this is going to be a familiar passage to you because we've been talking about it quite a bit over the last few weeks. This is the passage that we used to introduce the Passover plan. That is God's plan for the redemption of the world and his people. That plan that came to fulfillment in Passover week of 33 AD with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we're gonna go beyond the first phase of the plan today and go into the second play phase of the plan. The phase when we join Jesus Christ and our story comes together with his story. So if you would look at Mark chapter eight, verses 27 through 35. Listen to what the Lord says to the church. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly, but Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself 
and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. On this first Sunday after Easter, help us to remember, O God, that you are calling us to follow you in extraordinary ways. And we ask, O Lord, that by your word you would show us just what you mean when you call us to be your disciples. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your Son, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. Some 30 years after his obscure birth in a country stable, Jesus of Nazareth became a celebrity. The humble carpenter's son had thousands of people following him. Everywhere he went, people just wanted to hear him or to see him or to touch him or to know what it felt like to be in his presence. And one day, while Jesus and his companions were headed to the next town for the next event, he finally just had to stop and ask the question, who do people say that I am? You know, what are people saying about me? What are the critics saying? How are my Yelp reviews? What's the buzz? What's the word on the street? How many likes do I have on Facebook? How popular am I? The disciples said, some think that you're John the Baptist, back from the grave. They think that you're the return of the prophet Elijah. That's what they're saying about you. You are huge. You're famous. They love you. And then Jesus stopped, and I can imagine him turning around to trap them in his gaze. But who do you say that I am? Peter was the only one with enough nerve to answer. And he said, you are the Christ. You are the one. You are the answer to Israel's prayers. You are the Messiah. You are the one chosen to save our people. But then Jesus said two of the craziest things. Two things they never expected to hear. First he said, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone who I am. And then he told them, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to suffer. First, the leaders and the scholars of our people are going to accuse me of blasphemy to destroy my reputation. Then they'll destroy my life with torture and humiliation. They will even kill me. But after three days, I will rise again. Now for all of them, but especially for Peter, they couldn't even process what Jesus was saying. How could that happen? He was more popular than the Beatles. How could, how could they turn on him like that? It's not what Peter expected. 
Peter's, Peter was thinking, I just said that you were the Messiah, and you are. And now you're telling me that you're going to die? And bless his heart, Peter took Jesus aside and actually began to rebuke the Son of God. You are the Messiah. You don't suffer. You heal and you give sight to the blind. You don't starve. You feed thousands. You don't follow. You lead. You don't serve. You command. You don't die. You raise people from the dead. And you don't surrender. You conquer. God is not supposed to show weakness. That's what makes you the savior. Right? Right? But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God. You're setting your mind on the things of man. And then he turned to the whole group, not, to the, not just the disciples, but to the crowd. And he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. When Peter answered Jesus saying, you are the Christ, he had the right creed. He had the right words. He called Jesus the Christ. He called him the Messiah. He got the words right, but he didn't understand what they meant. Peter was stuck in his definition of what Messiah was supposed to be. Just like the rest of the crowd, Peter wasn't expecting humility. He was expecting celebrity. But Jesus was going to do Something that neither he nor anyone else expected. He was going to do something totally unexpected. And why didn't Jesus want them to tell that he was the Messiah yet? He didn't want them to tell because he wanted to prove it first. Jesus wanted to prove his Messiahship. And not by his power, but by his love. You see, the crowd was following Jesus because of his authority, because of his power. But he wanted to be known for his love and his sacrifice. Jesus wanted to be known for something totally unexpected. He wanted to be defined by his mission of total loyalty to God and total love for humanity. He wanted to prove to the people that God really does love us. So much so that he was willing to give everything. His reputation, his safety, his comfort, his own body and his own blood, even his life. He was willing to give everything for us just to prove that he loved us. And he didn't want them to know who he was until he had proven who he really is by doing what they never expected. Then Jesus 
turned it all around on the disciples and those who were listening. And Jesus said this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Discipleship is not just about believing the right things and saying the right words. It's not just about having the right creed. It's about having the right words and understanding the truth of those words and then proving it, proving that truth by our lives. It's not just about our creed, but about the deeds that follow. You've heard me say before that discipleship is about moving from creed to the cross. And what Jesus was saying was this, that you not only have to believe the right things to be my disciple, you have to go where I go and meet whom I meet, serve whom I serve and love whom I love. You have to forgive whom I forgive and maybe even give your life for someone who doesn't deserve it. What did Jesus mean when he said that we must take up our cross? Well, one of my old Sunday school teachers once said that to take up your cross means that you stick your neck out for other people. Bearing our cross, bearing your cross, is a call to sacrifice for God and to sacrifice for others. Jesus did not go to the cross for himself. He went for us. He stuck his neck out for us, for the people who need him, and even for the people who don't think they need him. He stuck his neck out for people for whom sin and brokenness and guilt are all too real, but who do not believe in forgiveness and redemption or any way do not believe that it is for them. But that's what grace is. Grace is not loving and serving the people who deserve it or who should expect it or who get it. Grace is unexpected love. It's unexpected mercy. It's unexpected sacrifice. Grace is the unexpected part. Loving people who would never expect it in ways that they would never expect us to love them. In other words, it's about loving people the way God loved you. It's about loving people the way God loved us. Because that's what Jesus did for us. Before the crowds followed him, before the disciples followed him, before we followed him, he gave himself for us. And before Jesus ever told them or any of us to take up our crosses, before he ever told them to give their lives away in love, he took up his cross first. Jesus went First, haven't we seen that time and time again in the gospel? Anything that Jesus asks of us, he's willing to go through first. And he doesn't ask us anything. 
ask us to do or go through anything that he wasn't willing to endure first. Jesus went first. And so what does that mean for us? It means that we go first. To take up your cross means that you're going to have to stick your neck out in unexpected ways, maybe even all the way for Christ, all the way for one another, all the way for others, because you want other people to know what God in Christ Jesus has done for us. Not as a requirement, but as a response to God's grace to you. It's not a requirement of our salvation, it's our response to God's love. I mean, sadly, sometimes we get stuck on our definitions of what our mission is or it's supposed to be, what discipleship means, what faith means. And so often we have to confess that like Peter, we're all too happy to say the creed, but avoid the cross. We're all too happy to revel in the words, but we get stuck on the things of man and freeze in the things of God if it requires too much cross sacrifice. But Jesus is serious about this. He says, follow me, because he wants us to follow in his footsteps. To prove his love for people who would never expect it in ways they would never expect us to love them. And here's why. Jesus demonstrated unexpected humility, unexpected vulnerability, unexpected loyalty, unexpected courage, all for the purpose of getting people's attention. To get people's attention. To draw the world's attention to God the Father. Romans 15, 9 says that Jesus did what he did in order that people, the Gentiles, might glorify God for his mercy. Jesus did everything he did to draw attention to the mercy, to the love, to the forgiveness, to the grace, and to the power of God the Father. And he did it in a completely unexpected way. Why? Because when you do the unexpected, people pay attention. If you want to get people's attention, do something that they don't expect you to do. Do something they never thought you would do, that you would never take upon yourself or give away. Do something unexpected if you want to get people's attention. Jesus was saying, if you want to get people's attention, you have to go where I go and meet whom I meet and serve whom I serve, love whom I love, forgive whom I forgive, maybe even give your life to someone who doesn't deserve it. Now, in 2021, 175 years after our founding, I believe that Jesus is still commanding us to stick out our necks in unexpected ways. To stick out our necks, to love God, to love one another, and to love our neighbors in unexpected ways. Last week, I directed your attention to a recent Gallup study revealing that less than 50% of Americans claim any attachment or any relationship 
were the church. That's staggering. The lowest in America's history. And that, that really stunned me when I heard it. But the more I've thought about it, the more I've tried to wrap my head around that statistic, another situation, another issue has bothered me. And the problem is this. Is the problem with our country that only 50% are connected to the church or is the problem that those who are connected are only 50% committed? I mean, again, think about this. Do people look at us and see the people of the church as fully committed and willing to sacrifice everything for one another to bear their crosses for Christ and for their neighbors? Do they see us as people willing to take up the cross and stick, up, stick out our necks in unexpected ways or not? And then ask yourself this question. Would the Lord rather have 100% of Americans, 50% committed to him, or would he rather have 50%, 100% committed to him? in both creed and deed. What would it look like if the church was no longer lukewarm but hot? What would it look like if 50% of this country was 100% all in for Jesus Christ in both creed and deed? People are not going to follow Jesus until they see us follow him. They're not going to take Jesus Christ seriously until they see us take Jesus Christ seriously. They are not going to believe this stuff until they see that we really believe this stuff 100%. So how do we get people to take us seriously? How do we get people to take the gospel seriously? We go first. We prove that we trust him first. We prove our love for them first. And then we challenge people to follow us as we follow him. If we want to change people's minds about God, we have to show them something they are not expecting, that he has made a difference with us. Not 50%, but 100%. Now, before that first Easter, Jesus said, don't tell anyone who I really am. But now that he has shown us and proven the extraordinary love and power of God by his death and resurrection, now he is telling us, don't just tell them who I am, show them who I am. Be there incarnationally with your involvement in their lives. Share sacrificially with your investment in their lives and in their futures. And live confidently, resurrectionally, 
with joy, with, with inspiration, with enthusiasm, with hope, and with courage. And by your unexpected faith, working itself out through unexpected love and unexpected courage and unexpected humility and unexpected sacrifice, you will prove God's love. And then when they ask you, why are you doing all of that stuff for them? Then you can tell them. Because Jesus Christ gave his life to prove his love and to save me. 175 years ago, Brazos Presbytery chartered this church for God's kingdom glory and for the good of the people. But I believe that even after 175 years of faithful service, faithful mission, faithful teaching, surviving wars and political upheaval and social unrest and denominational crisis, even pandemics, even after all that, after 175 years, I believe there is still more in you. You have heard me say this before, but I believe there is more in this church, more in you than you can know. I believe that God is going to mobilize you and mobilize us to be his answer to someone else's prayer, to be their hope in, his, in another's time of distress, to be his ever-present help in, in time of need, and to prove his love in someone else's life, not just in your family, not just in this congregation, but in this city. And so, here's the question. How are we going to get people's attention? What's something that people would never expect from you? What's something that they would never expect? And I'd say, wow, I can't believe he did that. I can't believe she did that. What's something you would never expect from yourself? What risk? What sacrifice? What investment? What forgiveness? What friendship? What generosity? What influence, what compassion, what vulnerability, what restitution or confession, what apology, what courage? What is that unexpected cross that you're willing to bear? And it's not just individually. Think about us as a church. What is something that people would never expect from us? started thinking about this after 175 years can we can this church still surprise people I think we can and I know the Lord thinks we can in this pandemic scarred and politically hostile world God can still use this church to surprise people with his unexpected and amazing love we just have to be willing to take up our cross and follow him. We have to be willing to be, we have to be willing to be people who are ready to stick their necks out for Jesus Christ, to stick their necks out for one another, to stick their necks out for our neighbors in the city. So let me ask you this, 175 years and one week after our founding, a week after Easter, are we prepared to do 
the unexpected. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, you challenged all who would follow you to take up their cross, our cross, and follow you with faithfulness and unexpected love. Lord, only you know the plans that you have set aside for us, but we do know that according to Ephesians, there are works that you have prepared beforehand that we might bring glory to your name and to your son. Lord, bring us now to those good works that we may fulfill them in your sight and in the sight of the world for your namesake. Challenge us to do unexpected things for your kingdom glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. On that week of Passover in 33 AD, Jesus gathered with his, disable, uh, with his disciples in an upstairs room around a table to eat the Passover meal. And then he did something completely unexpected. He reinterpreted the entire meal to explain to them how God was going to bring about the redemption of the world through his own death. Jesus began to explain things to them in a way that he knew they could remember. And he used the unexpected, unexpected illustration of the bread and the cup to explain in a way that they would remember that his body was going to be broken and that his blood was going to be poured out for them. And that these, these ordinary symbols of bread and wine were going to become extraordinary signs of God's love for us. But it was all unexpected. And what happened over the next 24 hours were beyond their comprehension, beyond our comprehension. Even though Jesus had told them time and time again, this is what is going to happen. They were taken completely by surprise when they saw the depth and the width and height of God's love for them through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. We gather around this table today to acknowledge that God did something completely unexpected to grab the world's attention. We gather as his people regularly to remember that God has intervened not only in our lives but in our eternity in a completely unexpected way not with control or force, but with love and sacrifice. And so we gather at this table to celebrate the God who is so powerful that he expresses his authority in completely unexpected ways through humility and love. And when we come to this table, we come because we know that he is calling us to know his love and his power for us are as real as the bread and the cup that we share together. Beloved, this is the joyful feast of the people of God. Scripture says that they will come from east and west and north and south to sit at table in the kingdom.
to stand as witnesses to the unexpected and certain love and power of our God. We come to this table not because we are worthy, but because we are forgiven. And we are forgiven not because we are ourselves righteous, but because God loved us so greatly in unexpected ways that he gave his own son that we might be reunited with him. And so we do not come to this table because we must, but because we may. It is not a requirement, but a response to the love of God shown to us through the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so I invite all those who trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and all those who follow him as his disciple and who have been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to come to take and eat. For this is the Lord's table and he is calling for you.